Welcome to Burned by the Firewall, an Occamsec podcast. Welcome back, and thanks for joining us on another episode of Burned by the Firewall. I'm in studio tonight with my co-host who hails from north of the wall, Darren Anderson, and our special guest and good friend of the show, Josh Finney. Um, I think before we get started, a lot has changed since the last time we spoke with you, Josh. I think the, the topic du jour at the time was solar winds and zero trust. And since then, and, and even more recently, it's been the Colonial Pipeline and various other ransomware attacks. And then, of course, everyone's favorite New Year 2022 present, Log4J. Uh, and, and still yet, we'd be remiss to not mention you know, the current situation and the fear surrounding Russia and the cyber attacks and all the, the things coming out of that region right now. Um, all the while, Josh, you and, and your team have been busy in your lab, if you will, uh, diligently working uh, to kind of fend off the bad guys here at home and really help uh, CISA advisory kind of, you know, give, give guidance in, in, in the midst of all these incidents. So I know you're going to fill in the gaps for us uh, on all the things that you've done since our last chat. Uh, but I guess let's, let's really get started with uh, the most recent award that I want to just make sure we, we kick off the show with, and that was you were voted, if I'm not mistaken, the 2021 CISA Employee of the Year. Um, is that correct? That is correct. The rumor the rumors are true. It, uh, it was a bit of an embarrassing moment, to be completely frank. We, um, we have an incredibly strong group of threat hunters and, and forensic investigators uh, at CISA, and it was one of those moments where I went down the list of all the great accomplishments that we had over the course of the year in between, uh, in between and responding to all these crises. And it just, it, it felt like I was accepting kudos from, on behalf of so many other people. So it was an individual award that was driven by a bunch of team success. And that was, that took some rustling with internally, but um, it was, the, the reception to it was amazing. The, the agency was great. And to see, uh, you know, my name kind of collected with these other people that I know have been titans over the course of the year and, and, and measure up against their accomplishments as well. Just felt like rarefied, rarefied air to be in. Felt like a great spot. And, and so that was a nice little uh, bit of kudos from the agency. I really appreciate it. And I think even more recently, uh, there's been another sort of uh, vertical movement uh, that you can, you can sort of fill us in on. And I think given all this success, I just want to ask you kind of what you attribute this to, uh, you know, over the last couple of years, and maybe you can speak to specifically kind of what your team has created and, and or executed in that time frame. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, and, and this is a good reminder that every time we schedule one of these conversations, uh, everything goes to hell between like two weeks to a month beforehand. So we probably need to stop doing this because it's clearly like cause and effect, uh, not leading to good outcomes for us. But, um, <clears throat> you know, prior to and especially driven by um, solar winds and the, you know, identity compromises that, that played out as a result of the supply chain activity there, we really recognized the need at CISA to take a uh, much broader approach and, and increase our uh, capacity for being able to deal with uh, software supply chain activity and being able to, to understand the cyber uh, relevant inroads to uh, cloud computing systems. And so I was working with a vertical that really emphasized, um, you know, the kind of traditional forensic analysis of, you know, host and endpoint network. And we do that uh, at an exceptionally high level, <clears throat> but realized that we had an, an enormous, enormous growth opportunity ahead of us in terms of, uh, interrogating and working with cloud systems. And so, so we stood up as a result of that, really the first in uh, government, or at least the first amongst our, our immediate peer cohort of uh, cloud forensic capability and capacity. 
And when you look at that as a, as, as a space to get involved in, when you look at the way that um, all the different big players in the market function, you know, kind of independently, like working with Amazon Web Services, Google Cloud Platform, Azure, Microsoft N365, all the um, uh, data as a service components, Dropbox, Slack, you know, IBM's cloud, there, there are more flavors and more approaches here and all of them come with their own like kind of delightful nuances. Um, and so it's, an, it's kind of an unlimited opportunity space. And it's been really fun working across all of our, uh, both public and private partners, um, looking to figure out how to do this best and, and, and looking for you know, best, best of breed for folks who are doing incident response activities in the wild. And also, you know, trying to model security operations workflows and threat hunting workflows to, to incorporate this, this new frontier. And I know it's not a new frontier. This is technology that's been around for you know, the, the better part of a decade. But really, really coming to understanding in how our like transitive identity sources work across these platforms, and how we can integrate them into you know existing security operations workflows, and try and continue to drive towards the the myth of a single pane of glass for you know incident response and detection and monitoring um, has been has been fun and challenging and interesting and and you know as much of a philosophical journey as a technical one. Thanks, Josh. That's very interesting indeed. And so, so it sounds like you know you're obviously operating at some scale, to say the least. And what would you say were the biggest challenges um, when you think about aligning resources and processes to, to kind of continue these programs, achieve these goals at scale, and, and maybe a little bit about some of the lessons you've learned as, as a leader, I guess? So scale is hard. And I appreciate that as a question in that, like, this is a, this is a topic that regardless of the size of your organization, you're trying to understand how to scale a uh, moment in time and, and small micro type um, transactions to uh, things that happen at scale. And, and CISA has a lot of responsibility in that space, both in our national level perspectives um, with our NCPS programs and our CDM programs to, to make scale work, but also um, as we see organization scale, like trying to do the same things that we would have done, you know, 12, 15 years ago in the US CERT days uh, in terms of incident response and, and packing up a couple laptops and servers in a backpack and, and flying out uh, to respond to the uh, latest catastrophe doesn't necessarily always work anymore. And, and we have to be able to, to be able to perform and, and construct the same level of capacity in enterprises that have 500,000 endpoints and have a diversified technology stack. And that, that is exceptionally hard, um, especially when you bake in the industrial control systems side of the house where we're working with embedded processors and proprietary protocols. Um, the things that we've learned um, is that we have to be able to uh, interpret and access the data where it lives. We can no longer expect that um, you can run a couple of scripts or you can you know, uh, pull a, uh, you know, a flat database structure in and be able to understand and reconstruct uh, historical context. So you have to be able to um, find commonalities and patterns across different data sets. You have to be able to look in, you know, host network cloud, wherever it lives. You have to be able to understand the sources and sinks of uh, applications and microservice transactions. And you really have to be able to understand behaviors. And that's that's the biggest lesson that I think that we've had to learn and pivot in the last five to 10 years is that we, have, we can go from a place where we can expect a lot of, you know, signature-based alerts to fire and tell us, okay, some, some bad stuff happened over here to a much greater understanding of like, here's what normal looks like. Here's what normal user activity looks like. Here's what normal privileged identity usage looks like. And let's see where that has led to, you know, the, the kind of reachability of transactions across uh, the rest of the enterprise. Did, did this action on this side produce a discernible event in, you know, adjacent registry settings? Does it also have a record in, in data structures on the back end where it's been accessed? Being able to create 
um, you know, kind of that both mental map and, 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 and physical topology of where activity takes place and be able to track it, um, you know, across scale has been, um, has, has gotten easier as we've made it an emphasis. We heard a lot, uh, you know, during these last couple um, crises, never let a good crisis go to waste, whether it's Log4j or, or SolarWinds, that identity is the new perimeter and that reachability um, is a metric of understanding, like if I am at, you know, position X in, in a network or, or in a service architecture, where does that let me get to? Um, the, the old attackers thinking graphs and defenders thinking spreadsheets has never been more true than it is now. And so we've had to pivot into that kind of place. And so as, as, um, as a cohort, the um, approach matters, the philosophy matters. And we've learned that in this kind of environment, we have to uh, lean in on innovation. We have to lean in on the, the bleeding edge of technology services and understand how they work, understand how Sec DevOps processes work and look for opportunities in our own technology footprint um, to be flexible in our approach and blow up all of the assumptions that we've had and that we've kind of labored under as to how we need to go about getting to those, those better outcomes. And, and the opportunity space for this really is unlimited. Um, and, and when you look at the, the public-private partnership aspect of it, um, it's, it's great to have everybody kind of swimming in that same direction of, of visibility and detection. Yeah, I mean, that's a phenomenal answer, Josh. And I feel like the, the next question that we talked about kind of diving into almost, uh, you, you touch on it a little bit there in, in your response, just because I, I feel like you're you're describing sort of uh, a morphing, if you will, of how we approach the, the problem set. But, you know, working with the scale that you've worked with, talking to people in both the, the private sector and the government sector, what are some of the biggest mistakes or maybe some of the, the easiest mistakes that are kind of a, a big risk um, item that, that you see being made or, or decisions that are being made when it comes to, you know, these types of activities? I, w- I will say that when we talk about mistakes, the, the, the effect of managing a, a cyber program is so much different depending on the industry that you're working in. The, the same challenges that are presented to, uh, government partners are, are obviously, and, and, and this is not news to anybody, are, are much different than they are when we're working with uh, critical infrastructure programs or, um, you know, small businesses, um, state, local, tribal. Um, and, and as such, it, it's sometimes difficult to draw threads of what um, are common growth opportunities across all of those different um, verticals. But um, we start with, and this is an ultra boring answer. And I apologize for everybody who we're going to put to sleep immediately by saying it, but we start with that cyber hygiene baseline that we know what is happening uh, on our wires. And that's still, you know, 20, 20 years into, you know, this kind of uh, era of, of computing still remains uh, the biggest challenge across fortune 500 all the way down to the smallest mom and pop is just understanding physically what's on our wire, whether, you know, that's distributed across, you know, international boundaries or, uh, you know, a point of sale in, in, in a small shop, uh, that, that same difficulty in accounting for our, our hardware assets and, and what software is running on them remains a huge challenge. I, I t- touched on it in the earlier answer, but being able to establish a baseline of what normal looks like remains an impossibly high walled scale for, for, for many people. Um, and so, so being able to say what abnormal looks like or what threat activity looks like um, is really difficult to do when we don't know what normal looks like. So, so starting in a place where we're just able to set a baseline of here's what encompasses our organization. Here's what being a, uh, a modern environment or a modern security DevOps focused organization looks like. Here's what we want to be. Here's what we want to control. 
being able to set that baseline and work across from there. Um, the biggest uh, philosophical challenge that I see in the world or in, you know, across our, our cyber stakeholdings is um, a emphasis on defensibility or the, the way that we can construct perimeters around information and data and less of an emphasis on resiliency. And you mentioned ransomware in the last conversation. Um, the, the, the speech that um, I've seen given at uh, conferences these days is to not view ransomware as a if, but a when. Um, and as such, the only, the only defense that we truly have at the end of the day uh, against those types of attacks is being a, a resilient organization and being able to um, recover and being able to isolate and, and mitigate the blast damage of, of cyber attacks. Even the, the most well-resourced billion dollar firms are still working under the understanding that they're gonna have to be able to respond quickly to incidences as they arise. Um, the key piece of that I view is, is the cyber resiliency piece. And um, uh, Sunil, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure if you've seen this, but he, he gives a great brief on the, the die triad, how it replaces the old CIA lexicon, the confidentiality and integrity and, and availability. Um, they're saying modern systems should be built with the process prospects of uh, diversified information, immutable resources, and ephemeral resources, that you're able to blow things away and recover from code in a, in, in a way that doesn't impose a you know, million dollar economic impact on your enterprise. So um, again, like getting, getting back to basics with cyber hygiene, understanding your baseline so that you know what anomalous looks like, but also more importantly, having resiliency that you can trust and that you practice seems to be one of the things that uh, we all need to, to, to kind of lean on a little bit uh, more in the 21st century. Thanks, Josh. I think that leads us probably nicely into touching on something Mike mentioned at the top there, uh, you know, Log4j, solar winds not so long ago. And I guess aside from the talking points that they they uh, provide, what would you say we've learned from those events? And indeed, what have you seen being implemented as, as real change um, off the back of such sort of high profile events? Um, I, I dislike the pretense of the question that I have to not rely on all these talking points um, because uh, <laughs> it means that we are, are, are going to get outlandish in our responses. But joking aside, um, what we have learned from all of this is, is, is very similar lessons about how we need to make changes to the software ecosystem long term. Like we can't continue to just operate in this wild, wild west frontier of software, of, of just kind of relying on all the dependent code libraries and everything that we deliver, every appliance that we put into a network being, you know, wrapped up with, you know, 50 open source packages that we don't know the ins and outs of at the end of the day, like we need greater perspective and visibility into what is baked into the products that we uh, bring into our corporate enterprises. But also um, we need to push the security of those things much, much farther to the left so that we're not trying to figure out in the moment how things happen, but, but rather start with a place um, in which we are baking those kind of standards in upfront. Um, one of the great CIS initiatives that I've, I've really loved hearing about this year is the software bill of materials push, which is literally a, just a manifest. As, as we buy products or as we integrate products into enterprises that we have a, 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 a transcript of here's what software is included in this and here's what we can expect from it. I've heard the, uh, the folks over at Nexthop talking about how that should be even taken a step further into a network bill of materials, not just like, the, the component parts of software packages, but also here's what it's be, expected behavior will be once it's on the network. Here's the, the protocols it's gonna reach out on, here's the ports. Uh, I think that those kind of uh, 
ecosystem changes as I, as I describe it are going to be the, the best um, salve for, you know, the constant stream of uh, massive vulnerabilities that we've seen over the, the last couple of years across, you know, multiple product vectors. Yeah, Josh, again, I think that's an, a fascinating answer. Uh, and I think I want to kind of split this next question into two parts uh, and it sort of ties into the last thing that you were, you were mentioning and just sort of what's been going on in the last couple of years is, you know, especially with ransomware, if you look at the, the reports from, from all over, you look at the FBI reported what two twenty billion $20 I think in losses last year, um, a 67% increase from the, the previous year. Right. So like you mentioned, um, attackers thinking graphs and, and you know, that's sort of the, the, the product of that is, is that continues to sort of trend upwards. Um, I mean, are, are we going to get to a point, do you envision us getting to a point where ransomware is ever going to go away? Or is this just an inherent risk of being connected to the internet and, and all the different things like you mentioned, um, the different components um, that, that are going into, you know, software as a service and, and all these different things. So is kind of where, where do you see all this headed? So I will, I will say that um, Josh Adamas here is not a great predictor of, of the threat landscape in, in four to five years. Um, if you had told me that 10 years later, we'd still be seeing, you know, phishing attacks as one of the primary uh, vectors for offensive uh, campaigns, I would have said at this point, we'd have figured that out. At this point, from a technology standpoint, like we would have gotten past phishing. We would have gotten past like my, my grandparents clicking on things in their emails and, and having that kick off a, a, a torrent of activity. Um, but also, I see the right kind of language around how you get away from ransomware style attacks and that, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to wave the magic wand of cyber goodness over it and say that zero trust is a sol- the, the, the solution to all this, but it really is how we need to think about um, a new approach to computing that, that gets us away from one incident, completely locking up our entire operation cycles. And, and some of this um, sounds like a silver bullet, but the more we are able to introduce, um, you know, logical trust boundaries and um, the capacity to carefully manage privileged identity sources so that um, getting access to any one point in enterprise doesn't create these kind of enormous at scale challenges is going to pay like big dividends into those types of uh, attacks. And I don't know what that translates to because there's always been something. We moved from like a commodity malware place uh, you know, in the sandworm era to um, the, the, the types of malware that we saw resident in a lot of the, the, the black matter type stuff to, um, to, to this kind of space in which there's a ubiquity of initial access brokers through credential theft and, and ransomware type attacks. Um, again, the same principles that we've always known are the, the greatest uh, defense against these kinds of things. The, the ability to logically isolate um, you know, application structures from, from its backend data sources, the, the ability to prevent the breach of an endpoint leading to domain admin compromise. Those are going to be the kinds of things that, that provide the biggest punch back against those. So I absolutely see a landscape in which this moves on into to whatever the next phase is. And, and the way that this works typically is that, you know, the, the attackers are always one step ahead in terms of novelty, and then the defenders adjust to that. And when we get ahead of that in terms of our approach and our philosophies, that's when we'll be able to, to really impose cost and be able to disrupt um, those, those guys who wish to sell. Yeah. So I think we're all looking forward to that day, right, Josh, when, when, when that can happen. It's definitely, like you mentioned, a cat and mouse game back and forth. Um, and I think this sort of ties into that, that second question that I wanted to ask 
And, and this also relates to your vertical move into, I believe, a, a new role in that threat hunting space at CISA. Um, and that question that I have for you is sort of what is the place for threat hunting in the modern landscape? And, and how can a company uh, or a CISO or a CTO uh, really effectively and efficiently begin uh, threat hunting without buying, you know, another expensive tool or silver bullet type of, of thing out there on the market? I really love that question. And I think that um, this is an easy one to ask in any kind of, uh, you know, diversified uh, conference type area. And you'll get a really, really uh, diversified set of opinions. And you'll see the, the kind of antenna go up of people who love to talk about like something that's near and dear, because the difference between your standard security operations flows and threat hunting is a philosophical difference, but it's one that needs to be more closely related. Um, and I think about it a lot in terms of how, um, how our folks over at MITRE and the like talk about the, the habits of effective SOCs and the habits of, of mature security operations organizations is they get to a place where they can do that kind of threat on the activity because, because it is slightly different and it is much more of a problem-based, you know, working through, um, working through out-of-the-box type scenarios and trying to invent ways to, um, to understand the, the way an adversary or a threat actor is going to move through an environment. We, we, we frequently talk about the place where we're trying to identify the walk or how we move from one compromised bit of a network into other compromised bits of the network. How do we get from a place where um, we are dealing with that remote uh, access edge device, which seems to be really, really popular over the last two years with, with all the different uh, vulnerabilities in, in every different kind of remote access uh, capability and how you move from that into the, 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 the cyber key terrain or a high value assets, the, the, the ultimate action on objectives place. Um, and being able to do that is much more of a purple team concept, much more of a purple team philosophy of understanding these are what common attacks look like. These are the types of artifacts that those type of attacks produce and being able to verify that when we execute on the left side of the you know, breach spectrum, that it creates a visibility artifact on the right side and that that's measurable and repeatable and that we're able to walk our, 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 our teams through the process of that. Can we make sure that for every offensive action, there's a defensive reaction that's, that's, um, that's baked into our process and, and is as automated as possible. Removing humans from that process cycle gets us to a place where we're able to focus on the really wild or outlandish or unique and not on you know walking through, running scripts, running through processes, looking through pages and pages of output. Um, because ultimately at the end of the day, threat hunting is what I mentioned earlier. It is, it is uh, identifying the outliers in, in pattern matching. It's being able to find the unusual process artifacts, being able to identify the, uh, the unique um, uh, communications coming out of a, an endpoint or across the network. It's being able to see um, places where um, unique endpoints on a network are communicating in a way that they shouldn't be able to and being able to track that back to the core of the activity. And, and, and the MITRE attack framework is a great place for that because rather than looking for signatures or looking for things that tell us that things are weird, it's a way of saying, hey, like this is what the technique that the threat actor would use looks like. Do you have visibility into that across whatever the stack is, mobile, enterprise, cloud, et cetera. And so, so it really creates a really interesting place in which we can say, can I think like an attacker can I identify where those attacks are happening? And can I make sure that that's baked into our automated processes as much as possible? Thanks, Josh. And 
Um, you know, it's interesting. You talked earlier a lot about the, um, you know, how some of the basic principles still apply. And I guess, you know, some of the fundamentals of, of security often don't change so much. And um, I guess on that kind of wave, I mean, what would you offer perhaps to more the kind of small and, and medium business um, kind of uh, sector who are interested in, in, in being more secure, but often, as we know, budget and resource will, will always be the challenge. So maybe just to revisit some of the sort of hygiene stuff you talked about, but as I say, specifically for those kind of SMEs, you know, any recommendations um, you would you would mention for for that sector? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I'll start out with a, a another program that we've um, really, really um, gotten a lot of steam on in the last year, which is our known exploited catalog, our known exploited vulnerabilities catalog. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar. Um, but it is a really, really great idea that came out of one of our sister shops to say, let's start from a place when we talk about cyber hygiene in which we don't have exploitable code on our networks. We, we understand our vulnerable state and we're able to say like these products are known exploited in these versions and that we should move to a place in which we don't have any of that code or software. So we don't have that initial foothold for, for attackers in the network. That's a great small to medium business size initiative of understanding like this is the software that I utilize in my business. Here are the versions of that that are known to be exploited in the wild. Let's let's start from a place where we don't put that uh, on our on our networks, and that, that, that we keep things up to date. Um, patch management doesn't carry with it a uh, a cost of somebody prescribing you know software services to your environment to keep things up to date. That is something that you've already procured. Just keeping it at a place where um, it doesn't automatically provide a foothold for an adversary is a great place to start. Um, Application security programs for small and medium businesses, everybody wants to deploy uh, their own web applications. Everyone wants to deploy forward-facing, forward-looking things. Everyone wants to run services and services are hard to do. Um, if you're gonna build things and run them yourself, like you have to be able to have some sort of a, a, a fledgling application security program at the small medium business or get out of the habit of doing it. It's, it's something that um, with, with all of the hosted application services that are out there, there is an opportunity to get out of the business of doing it. Um, Commodity IT is hard. So managing all your IT resources is hard. Commodity application management is even harder. And so I would say, if you're going to do that, make sure you bring in the, the, the stakeholders that are involved in your application design. Make sure that you understand the normal use of it, that you can say like, okay, this is not how it's intended to be used. And we can shut that bit of it off. And you can do the, um, you can put in the effort for your own uh, linting processes and application code scanning processes with, with the open source that's out there uh, and get to a place where you feel fundamentally secure about anything that is facing out to the rest of the world. Because under, understandably, that has been a place in the last five to six years where we've seen a huge amount of activity is, is uh, the targeting of the ways that people get into your data or ways that people get into your resources. Um, as such, I, I talked about it earlier. I don't mean to be the dead horse on it, but understanding what uh, privilege identity looks like, restricting that to the smallest possible group of users possible. Like these are the people who absolutely need that privilege level of identity restricting it to a place where you can expect them to do those privilege identity actions. Like these are the workstations. Uh, Microsoft Lexicon is the privilege access workstation or pause model that they've moved to. Um, that's a great spot to begin in terms of if I can restrict this activity to a space where I know what it looks like from a set of users that I know it's going to look like, I can make that just-in-time access or, or you know, privilege identity credentials that need to be checked out. And then they should only happen from these endpoints it's much, much easier for me to understand this is somebody that's masqueraded as one of my privileged users because I know what the rest of it should look like. And I'm describing this like it's easy and it's not. 
it is it is very very challenging but from uh for a bang for the buck um shrinking the sphere of influence of the things you have to pay attention to is going to be a great return on investment for your for your money because because uh, otherwise uh, you're going to be playing a game of whack-a-mole um the last great pitch i'd say for for small and medium businesses is to be informed understand what's going on in the world and this can be done in any number of ways it's one of my favorite um interview questions that i'm outing myself on right now but i love to say like how do you understand what is going on in the world right now in terms of the major vulnerabilities that have been out, the, the major uh, breaches that have happened to uh, like-minded organizations? These are things that continue to be uh, free and accessible to people, whether you have a you know, Feedly feed or it's a Twitter account timeline or you know, saved list, find people in a similar industry as you and look at what they are going through. It usually only takes five, 10 minutes a day to, to, to get up to date on what the news is. There's a wealth of podcasts on your morning commute. We still have one of those. Um, and, and that's a great place to get to in terms of just let, let me understand what, uh, the crisis of the day is, um, by and large, it is remarkable the amount of really, really useful nuggets, um, that are put out by fortune 500 companies across the, across the spectrum in terms of what they can do to help their stakeholder base. The, the era of trying to keep things to yourself is over. Folks will share and they're happy to share and they're happy to coordinate and consolidate information so to, to make people safer because they recognize um, that that's the only way we succeed in that space. So, so get yourself access to that. O open yourself up to the, the open source reporting that's out there and, and, and make sure that um, you find like-minded folks uh, in your, in your you know, comparative industries that are working through the same challenges that you do. Yeah, that's uh, fascinating stuff, Josh. Thank you. I, I really do like the idea of, you know, limiting the, you know the kind of attack surface that the, the amount of stuff you have right is yeah we'd, we tend to suggest you can then more easily improve security so that's um that's a really great answer thanks josh well unfortunately i think this does mark the end of our time with you but thanks again so much josh for for sharing that time and your expertise with the audience and really appreciate you joining us of course love to talk to you guys this is always a treat Thank you. And uh, to all the listeners, thanks for tuning in. And you can join us again on Burned by the Firewall. Mm -hmm.